The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. On July 9th, 1949, construction began on the headquarters for the Universal Life Insurance Building on what is now the corner of Danny Thomas Boulevard and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue. The groundbreaking was a signature moment for the Black-owned insurance firm that commissioned and the Black-owned architecture firm that designed the Egyptian Revival-styled headquarters. Universal Life Insurance began in 1923. It was founded by Dr. Joseph E. Walker alongside Memphis luminaries such as Archie Willis Sr. Other Memphis institutions, such as Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church and Tri-State Bank, were founded in its orbit. Their headquarters would rise as a modern marvel of commerce, community, and uplift, with a design that would signal a legacy of African-influenced power. It was a beacon and a testament to the might of African-American businesses in the still heavily segregated South. The hallways of the Universal Life Insurance Building would echo through the latter half of the 20th century, with the footsteps of some of the most significant figures of Memphis history through some of the city's most significant times. Those same hallways echoed emptily, though, as the new millennium dawned, and another Black-owned architecture firm would reimagine what the space and its significance could be. father was a jockey, learned me to ride behind. You know by that I got a job any time you may leave, but this'll bring you back. I walked around the corner to the peanut stand, my gal got stuck on the peanut man. You may go, but this'll bring you back. You quit me pretty mama cause you couldn't be my boss but a rolling stone. Don't gather no moss, you may leave, but this will bring you back. So, Jimmy Tucker, thank you for joining me today. For those who, who may know your name and know a little bit about the work of your firm, Self and Tucker, but not know much about you, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a brief introduction to yourself and how how you got to the work that you're doing today. Okay. Uh- Hello, everyone. Uh, and my name is Jimmy Tucker. I'm very pleased to be here today. Uh, I am a, a native Memphian, so I'm very excited about talking about uh, Memphis history today. Uh, I um, very much appreciation for the city and its history, uh, very expiring in, in, in many aspects, uh, but much of it is. Uh, not as widely known as it should be. So again, I'm pleased to be here to, to talk about uh, at least uh, one important aspect of it. Uh, but I'm uh, have worked here as an architect in Memphis since uh, 1995. I had uh, returned to Memphis after having gone away to college, uh, as well as actually going to high school and college outside of the city uh, and 
1995, uh, decided uh, I would return and shortly thereafter I started uh, our firm, Self Tucker Architects, with my partner, Juan Self. And uh, we had actually uh, met a few years prior to 1995 and had been planning uh, to start the firm over those uh, preceding years. Uh, and so uh, we uh, had a, a great partnership uh, over uh, this time, this uh, 25 years. Uh, and um, during that time in 2006, we did acquire the Universal Life Building. And so uh, I'm pleased to be able to uh, share some information about uh, the building as well as uh, the people that are connected uh, with the company and uh, the McKissick and McKissick Architectural Firm, uh, which uh, designed, designed the Universal Life Building. So, Jimmy, I love how you stated that there's so much to appreciate about Memphis history. And what's interesting to me about the story of Universal Life and the building is that it weaves together all of these threads that deserve appreciation. And uh, you mentioned the people. And I'm wondering if we might start our conversation there. Can you tell us, can you paint the scene of the lead up to the formation of Universal Life with individuals like Dr. Joseph E. Walker, Archie Willis, uh, Mark Bonner. What is happening in Memphis at the time that Universal Life is being formed? Right, and those individuals are definitely uh, the, the key players. And uh, I think as particularly as many of us uh, have even recently uh, been uh, understanding a lot of you know what happened in uh, Tulsa in the Greenwood uh, district there uh, it's some similar circumstances are, are taking place in Memphis in fact uh, people are some people are actually relocating from uh, the Mississippi Delta area uh, to Tulsa because of some of the racial strife that is taking place at that time. But uh, Dr. Joseph Walker, he was born in uh, Mississippi uh, right around uh, the late uh, 80s, 1879, as as a matter of fact. He was born in Tillman, Mississippi, which is uh, south of Jackson. And so uh, education, uh, well, his his parents were, were sharecroppers. But education was very important to them. So uh, he ultimately ended up going to uh, Alcorn College as well as um, he went to medical school at at Meharry. Uh, So uh, he was obviously a very uh, smart man and uh, very uh, talented. In, in many aspects. And so even in, in those early years, I mean, he was successful uh, in, in getting that education, really positioned him to be a leader uh, in, in his community. Uh, and so uh, he also uh, practiced, started a, a medical practice uh, in Indianola, Mississippi, uh, and later uh, became the president of a bank in that area and ultimately uh, an insurance company. So 
some of that background when he came to Memphis, you know, he had some some strong skill sets that he was able to leverage. And uh, unfortunately, again, due to some of the, the racial strife that occurred uh, during Mississippi in those years, he saw greater opportunities uh, in in uh, relocating the, the, the Memphis. And also, there was some changes in the company uh, that he he managed uh uh, during during that time, so um, he did come to Memphis, and as I understand, uh, he met um, Archie uh, Willis or A. W. Willis, I should say A. W. Willis, who is actually the grandfather of Archie Archie Willis. Uh, and so, as I understand it, uh, the, the Willis family, even at that time, had some. Uh, some financial resources, and as it's been described, as we have heard from some of the uh, Universal Lights, as they're, they're referred to, passed down the history of how Universal Life Insurance Company started. Uh, they described uh, Mr. Willis as uh, the person that had the financial resources that helped uh, Mr. Walker start the company. Uh, although he had the idea, and then Mr. Bonner uh, had some of the expertise uh, around um, insurance, uh, and as I understand, uh, so so did Mr. Willis have some of that expertise as well. So they came uh, together here in Memphis, and uh, this was uh, during the um, early twenties, and ultimately. They founded the company uh, in nineteen in nineteen twenty three. Um, so, insurance was an important uh, type of uh, product that helped uh, econ- around economic development for the African American community. Uh, importantly, uh, insurance. Uh, Funerals, uh, things of that nature uh, were some of the uh, primary uh, leading profession, professions in the, in the community, obviously along with uh, uh, doctors and the more, more trained professionals. Uh, but uh, so they did start the company then and uh, it had a, an incredible amount of growth over, over the years. And uh, and also, it was uh, an incredible resource as far as being able to employ people in the community and to uh, help people get uh, homes. Uh, they were did some uh, real estate development, creating Walker homes. So in a number of aspects, uh, the Walker family, along with Mr. Willis and uh, other leaders within the company, were having a, a major the impact uh, in, in the city at that time. You mentioned this growth that the company went through. So founded in 1923, sets up shop on Beale Street yeah, a few years after that. And then this amazing growth occurs. And we move forward a few decades into the late 40s. And the company has outgrown its Beale Street location and is looking 
to build a headquarters for itself, which leads us to universal life building. Um, and we'll get to the larger story of its rehabilitation that your firm undertook in a bit. But what what are the conditions of the neighborhood around universe, where the universal life building still stands in the late 40s? Why that site? Well, uh, this is kind of interesting. A lot of that history is also uh, become people become more aware of the history related to how uh, redlining had occurred, uh, how urban renewal took place, and how some of those different initiatives that were actually federal programs uh, influenced our urban development, not just in Memphis, but really around the country were taking place. So unfortunately, uh, in some of the years uh, just prior to uh, 1947, when uh, the, the work on the building started, there had been uh, displacement there in that uh, particular area. And also a lot of uh, out-migration, uh, particularly of some of the um, whites that uh, had also uh, live there uh, around the location of uh, Lyndon and and uh, and Danny Thomas, uh, and so uh, for example, prior to uh, the uh, Walkers considering acquiring that particular location, they had actually been approached uh, to by a church that was just down the block, uh, which is now Mount Olive Church. Uh, that church, that congregation uh, was uh, planning to you know, leave the community. And this, this was also a time when new public housing uh, was being built there in the community. Uh, Claiborne Homes, Foot Homes, uh, again, around 1940, developments were taking place. So there's a good a lot of change that's taking occurring really around uh, in the blocks uh, surrounding the, the site of the of the Universal Life Insurance building, the current site. And so um, ultimately, an uh, important decision was made by by the Walkers. And that time it was both Joseph Walker and his son, A. Maceo Walker, uh, who was then a very important leader within the company as well. Uh, but they decided to not acquire a church and that was a reflection of a building that had been there and one that's showing um, the neighborhood is changing. But uh, what they wanted to do is really create an entirely new building on a site that just happened to be available at a very prominent corner. Uh, and they chose to do it out of Egyptian revival style of architecture. So again, uh, in, in important ways, they were selecting a location, a style, uh, a very, uh, to make a strong statement, uh, about, uh, their building and their, uh, their aspirations, you know, for, for the company and the impact, uh, that, uh, they were already having on the city and what they wanted 
to have uh, going going forward. So there was a lot of important symbolism that was uh, communicated by that decision. Uh, and obviously, I can imagine there was a lot of visibility that they had and a lot of expectations that the community had about about them uh, making uh, this particular uh bringing this particular project to life, you know, in, in those years. And it's, it's, it's important to note that uh, Dr. Walker and uh, Moses McKissick, they actually met around the same time that the uh, Universal Life Company started in 1923. Uh, actually, uh, Mr. Mc Mr. McKissick and his firm, they designed uh, what was then Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church, which was at that time was located on Mississippi, uh, near, near Mississippi and Walker, near the, the four-way restaurant. Uh, it's actually a neighborhood that I grew up in. Uh, and so that, that church was there and it was a, a very important structure, but that's kind of where that relationship began. So when, they had the opportunity, the Walkers had the opportunity to then uh, do this new building some almost uh, 30 years later. They uh, selected uh, the uh, McKissicks uh, to, to do that uh, particular project. And the McKissicks had an incredible history themselves of working on projects really across the state and across the region. Uh, having started, you know, their, their firm in 1905. And, you know, by this time, they, they've been in business, um, you know, almost, uh, 50 years themselves. So, um, yeah, that's, that is, a, there's a number of different intersections of history. Uh, that, that again, it's important, um, for young people to know about, you know, we share this history, you know, in, in our office. Uh, so that people can make that connection as particularly as architects uh, of the important work that the McKissicks have been doing uh, over a number of years and how these relationships uh, brought individuals together uh, to have uh, an important uh, impact on our community. What's so striking about the McKissick history and how it how it's expressed within the building is that it works on so many different levels. It works on these levels uh, that are are kind of broader in terms of its orientation to the community and how all of these community actors are working together. I also think there's a layer just at, from a design perspective that's really interesting to unpack. What can you share with us about? how the McKissicks designed the building itself, both in some of the exterior elements uh, with solutions. Obviously, you mentioned it's in this Egyptian revival style, but there are certain elements um, like with the sun disc and globe motif uh, at the front cornice of the building or facade. Uh, some of these symbols that are incorporated throughout the design, but then also in the interior, in terms of being a functional workspace, 
pretty forward thinking, essentially open air offices before that concept is <clears throat> is even widely uh, thought of or acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Egyptian revival style is not one that's very uh, prevalent here in in Memphis or even across the state of Tennessee. Uh, you know, we know a lot about different other uh, styles of, of architecture that have, have been um, a revival, say a colonial revival or a Greek revival, but the uh, Egyptian revival was unique and the fact that they were able to execute it uh, so well also speaks to the talent of uh, the McKissicks as, as a firm to be able to integrate those elements that you were describing uh, primarily at the front entrances or the entrances to the building as, uh, as you would expect by uh, the columns uh, and the capitals uh, that they incorporate to really make a statement as someone uh, is is entering uh, the structure, particularly on the most visible elevations on both uh, the south where the front entrance is, and then uh, there was an important uh, side entrance uh, on the west side of the building. Uh, and they used a very um, high-quality materials, the stone that was incorporated uh, into the building. And it's interesting, we have some of the records uh, of uh, some of the local um, contractors and vendors that were a a part of the project. So it's, uh, and and quite honestly, we're still delving into that information to better understand who these people were and what their role is. But uh, you mentioned that uh, the McKissicks, they had a role in both designing and building the building. And that's also relates to that history of, uh, uh, the McKissick family. You know, they started, uh, as, uh, bricklayers, uh, as, uh, as slaves and, the, uh, and Moses McKissick, uh, the, uh, Founder of the company, or founder of that particular, the namesake, I should say, uh, when we, we talk about the generations of the McKissicks, uh, he was actually named for the slaveholder that, uh, 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 that, uh, had purchased him, uh, during that time. And this would have been during the late, uh, 1700s. And then we have another generation of McKissick's Gabriel McKissick, who's the father of Moses, you know, he was also a very talented bricklayer. And then uh, Moses McKissick, he learned not only how to uh, be a, a craftsman, but also he got experience being an architect, working for an architect. This would have been uh, during the early uh, 1900s. So they, they bring that skill set uh, and that experience to this particular project. So it is very well executed, both from a construction standpoint, 
for planning of it, the way that in which uh, it's incorporating natural light uh, and the, the, the floor plans that you, you described, Ben, as, as well as uh, it incorporated a lot of technology in subsequent years. Um, it was as you said it was built in 1949, but shortly thereafter, uh, the mainframe computers uh, became important, and certainly it was important to the business that uh, they did, uh, being able to track uh, their customers and the payments that were being made. So. As we understand it, they had one of the first mainframe computers uh, here in the city. And when we first acquired the building, uh, there was a, a, a room uh, on the first floor that was totally dedicated uh, to to those to those uh, computers. So uh, they, there was about two hundred people that worked out of that building. Now many of them were. Uh, Agents that spent a short time there, but they had uh, people of all sorts of skill sets uh, that uh, worked there. And uh, all the stories we've heard indicated it was a very well-run company. And I've, I've managed a firm along with my partner of 25 people over about 25 years. Uh, so we kind of understand the challenges of, of being able to successfully manage a company. So that's another reason why we are so inspired and appreciative of the success that the Walker family you know, had, had over the years, because it's, it's reflected in so many aspects uh, of what they were able to accomplish. Now, we can talk about the building, we can talk about the economic impact, uh, but there was also an, a, a, an important community impact uh, that, that they that they had, you know, even well, well beyond the building. And let's unpack that community impact. How was this space that is intended as the headquarters for a business? It also becomes de facto community space as well. How was that utilized, especially as we think <laughs> moving beyond you know, building opens in 49, moving beyond the initial um, the initial use of the building and into the civil rights era. How was it really transformative as both business and community space? Right. And, and, and you're absolutely correct in making that connection you know, to uh, the evolution up to the um, Civil rights era. Uh, obviously, prior to that, there was a lot more segregation, you know, within our city, limited places for African Americans to meet. Uh, obviously, there were churches, but if there were some other type of function, uh, where maybe some uh, uh, more of a social activity, it might be uh, more appropriate, you know, for another space. So. The lower level of the um, Universal Life Building was really that uh, particular space. And it was also kind of a neutral space. Uh, it's not connected with any particular uh, religious group. So for those reasons, it, uh, 
it became a very important space for uh, you know, different kind of uh, events and celebrations uh, within within the uh, city. And uh, I will just examples. Uh, uh, there's uh, Miss Mary Mitchell who lives in uh, Orange Mound. Uh, she tells the story of how, as a, a teenager, she went to um, a historic Melrose School, and they had their prom in the in, in the lower level of the Universal Life Insurance Building. And we've got photos also where individuals such as uh, uh, Jesse Jackson and others, when they were in town, uh, they would uh, come to meetings there at the at the at the Universal Life Building. So in just many different aspects uh, that building that company was a you know it's a hub of activity uh in the in the community uh they had also a very important uh programs where young people would work there during the summer uh archie willis for example you know he talks about um uh, his summer experience uh working at the company and um i believe he met his wife alicia there uh during that period of time. Uh, so in just so many ways, there are ways in which they're having that impact uh, uh, on, uh, on individuals and uh, that still to this, to this day, uh, finally remember that ex experiences that they, that they had. And that relationship of the building and of universal life to the city had many, there were many externalities that mm -hmm. arose from the conversations and the congregations of people right. who were coming together there. Probably the most, and this happens a bit earlier on in the history, right? But probably the most, um, most visible, uh, visible outgrowth or business to come out of universal life is tri-state bank which i believe happens in back in the 40s is that right yeah it happened uh right around 1945 it was a few years prior to uh the the building that uh that we own that uh before it got started and one of the reasons that's connection is important to make is at that time, you know, it was very difficult for African Americans to borrow any uh, sizable uh, amount of money, you know, without actually having a, a white co-signer. So, uh, you know, so you can imagine that all through those years uh, when the uh, company first got started, uh, obviously those, you know, relationships are very important to have relationships with diverse individuals in the community, which that was another uh, part of the success of, of the Walker family that uh, you know, they, they did, obviously, the, the connections to the African-American community uh, were important, but they, they certainly had um, strong relationships uh, beyond that with other progressive individuals in the city. Uh, but uh, they did start the bank uh, at that time, and I, I mentioned earlier that uh, Mr. Walker had some experience, uh, Joseph Walker had experience uh, from the time that he lived in uh, 
in Mississippi, I think it was the uh, Penny Savings Bank that uh, he, he he worked for a few years prior to starting. So they had some um, experience uh, in banking. Uh, so they uh, successfully started Tri-State Bank, and uh, you know it's still uh, you know thriving uh, you know to 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 this to this day. And the building, the building remains uh, this beacon and icon of the neighborhood and of the city, even as conditions change for Universal Life itself. So Universal Life remains a going concern. Uh, They still have a presence throughout the 80s and I believe into the 90s, but like changes that were occurring across numerous sectors and industries, Universal Life is susceptible to those changes as well. So if you could describe for us a little bit of what happened with the company and in turn with the building as these changes occurred, that sets the stage for your firm to come in and do the rehab that that you have done. And Ed, maybe we can dig into the history of how those conditions changed and then really uh, focus in on how self-tucker comes into the picture. Yes. Uh, so one thing it's important to note, I've, I've been mentioning uh, uh, Joseph Walker, you know, who started the company in 1923, and, and his uh, son, uh, A. Maceo Walker, you know, he grew the company um, over a, a number of years. I think he might have uh, had his, his strong his role, let's say, during the 40s and really right uh, on through to uh, the, the, the early 80s. And at that time, uh, his daughter, Amacio Walker's daughter, Patricia Walker, uh, she uh, took the leadership of the company, but she had worked there for a number of years, done all sorts of uh, jobs within the company. So she was very well respected. And so uh, she took ownership in 1983. Unfortunately, uh, uh, she uh, was struck with uh, a cancer, and she only uh, had that leadership role for uh, for for, for uh, two years up until '95, when she passed away. So, uh, A. Macia Walker uh, he resumed leadership uh, of the company, but obviously, you know, he was uh, up in years. Uh, uh, at that time, I think he actually, unfortunately, passed away in in around 1995. But some of the challenges had to do with uh, that strong history and that strong leadership that the Walkers and uh, the Willises were able to sustain over the years. So, uh, bumping up against. Uh, a lot of new products that were coming into uh, the insurance industry, uh, they primarily dealt with whole life insurance. And as we, we know now, and there's all sorts of different products that uh, are available relative to 
life insurance where we're talking about variable life or annuities and uh, the, you know just the list goes on. But uh, you know they had had tremendous success uh, over those years with with that approach to the business, and so unfortunately uh, they kind of got overtaken uh, by uh, a lot of changes that were occurring in the in the uh, insurance industry. So ultimately, um, the company closed around. Uh, the year that we hear is 2002, uh, but you know it probably was actually uh, losing uh, revenue and having to downsize. You know, even uh, during the years uh, uh, just uh, prior prior to that. So uh, the building was, uh, I guess, it became uh, owned by. Tri-State Bank, and uh, so they had uh, the ownership of the building when we uh, considered acquiring it um, around 2005, and we ultimately purchased the building in in 2006. But you can imagine at that time uh, the neighborhood is not, you know, what it is now. So that building was it was even talk of demolishing. That incredible building. So we just felt that we had to step in, hey, even though it was a thirty-three thousand square foot <laughs> building. Uh, you know, we certainly didn't need all that space for our, our company, uh, but we felt that you know something had to be done, and we thought that we had some of the skill sets uh, to definitely uh, do the project. Uh, but obviously, there were there were some skill sets that we lacked and, and with your experience being in, in, in real estate uh, development, uh, yeah, the real estate part was uh, and a very important skill set that we, that we didn't have as much experience uh, as we needed at the time, but we have certainly learned a lot you know, over this uh, succeeding years. I am fascinated and this might be too much of an inside baseball question for the general listener, but I'm fascinated. What did, what did your financing stack look like for the rehabilitation of the building? Right. Well, that's, that's a great question. <laughs> um, and I think maybe when I talk about lack of real estate experience, uh, we, we learned quite a bit by, we could obviously develop um uh, the information that was needed to present a concept for the building. You know, we had great renderings. We had the floor plans. Uh, we could determine uh, the cost of the project. And that's, that's important because that's one of the challenges that keeps people from doing real estate, some of that uh, real estate development, some of that reconstruction activity that's uh, that they're required to do. Uh, so we were able to um, get that work done. And uh, we were also um, able to go out and start talking to a number of banks. And we talked to quite a few. And one of the things that uh, I really learned through that process is that uh, you know, we were many times talking to the wrong bank. It was either they they 
weren't large enough to do the project or they it wasn't something that you know, they really had um, an interest in that type of project. Uh, but ultimately, we, we narrowed it down and uh, uh, to a, a couple of banks. So part of it, our, our capital stack can, did include um, bank financing. Uh, but one of the other, and we, we work with the Downtown Memphis Commission. I uh, were able to uh, get a, a major grant uh, from them, um, as well as a pilot for the project to uh, forego the increase in taxes. But one of the one of the real major challenges is that the project appraised for a lot less than it was needed. And as you know, you know, typically loan to value, you know, is is about twenty uh, percent equity and then 80% you can borrow, but the amount that we could borrow wasn't enough to um, cover the cost of, of the redevelopment of the building. You know, not necessarily anything to do with our credit worthiness, but just in terms of uh, the amount that a bank would be comfortable lending on the project and in case there were any problems that they could recover uh, that amount if they were to sell the building. So uh, that was a major challenge. And so it, what, it, what resulted was a, uh, a significant gap in funding over what uh, we could either borrow, find uh, grants for in the case of, uh, and loans in, in the case of the Downtown Memphis Commission. But fortunately, uh, through the support of initially the Wharton administration, we were able to create a public-private partnership. And that was very critical because that also gave the bank uh, some confidence that the city was behind us, that we were going to be able to overcome, um, that we were going to have a tenant, a major tenant, because the city also agreed to be a tenant in the building up to uh, approximately 50%. And we did, I didn't mention this earlier, but we were also able to secure some historic tax credits. Uh, and that was about $700,000. So that was a very important part of our, our capital stack as well. Uh, but even with all of the, the different aspects I, I just previously mentioned, there still remained a gap. Uh, and fortunately, uh, through the efforts uh, of some funds that were available through the state, you know, we were able to get another grant that did allow us to close uh, close that particular uh, gap in, in funding. It sounds like you went through the the Byzantine maze of financing that makes right. the state so difficult. <laughs> And we and we uh, and we we again we we acquired the building in 2006, and then another uh, important note is that uh, we had the economic downturn in 2008, and so ultimately uh, we were able to come back from that and got to get the building under construction in around 2017. Luckily. 
you know, most banks, as you alluded to, there's only so much creativity that a spreadsheet that banks base their decisions off of. There's only so much creativity that a spreadsheet can understand or absorb. Uh, but luckily, banks do seem to be loosening uh, they're not not loosening, but expanding their understanding of how to finance projects a little bit, looking at things like loan to cost rather than loan to value, understanding mm-hmm. that the traditional ways of evaluating the efficacy of projects is actually limiting and hampering and hindering the ability to deliver projects that restore value to neighborhoods like you have done. And thinking of that phrase, restoring value, I, I'm curious about the design approach that you and your firm took to the rehabilitation of the building. And generally, what what was the condition of the building when you took ownership back in 2006? Well, when we took ownership in 2006, actually, the building wasn't in, in, in bad condition. You know, they had uh, been maintaining a skeletal crew there. Uh, Mr. Mull, Alonzo Mull, he uh, was the building engineer during many of the preceding years before it closed. And he, he remained there uh, coming to the building each day. So it was in pretty, pretty good condition at that time. Um, unfortunately, uh, in the case of a lot of buildings, when that those people that are there uh, kind of showing up every day and, and, and they're no longer there, then the building becomes very vulnerable. So uh, kind of during that period of time when we purchased it and before we could actually uh, get the project underway, yeah, there was a lot of vandalism that, that did occur. Uh, copper wire being stolen. But fortunately, um, it wasn't an overwhelming amount of damage because we were able to maintain many of the uh, frosted glass windows in the corridor that have people's uh, names on it, those people that worked there o- over the years. And, and the reason why I mentioned that uh, is for a significant period of time, you know, the building sitting there is somewhat boarded up, you know, People really aren't aware. They're, they're reading a few articles here and there, but they're not quite sure, you know, what's happening with the building. We get a lot of questions, but it was just really amazing when some of the universal lights is, is what uh, they call themselves uh, came back to the building and they saw that, you know, we had kept their names uh, there along the main corridor. Uh, they're in gold leaf. And we actually uh, did refurbish some of those names, but but they're still there. So there's a, a record of those individuals that created uh, that company during those years and sustained it. And and, and you know, we're, we're we're very proud of, of of being able to keep their presence uh, and honor uh, the role that they played. You know, here I just in. The Universal Life Insurance Company, but really in, in our in our city uh, in general.
Drown in History is hosted by me, Ben Shulman. Thank you to Jimmy Tucker of Self Tucker Architects for his insight and dedication to preserving history, remaking it anew, and sharing it with us. And as always, thank you to Gilworth and the OAM Network team. Drown in History is a Just Place podcast, a production of the OAM Network. Follow us on Instagram at drowned underscore in underscore history. Let us know what you want to know. Give us a good review wherever you get your pod feeds. More soon will come soon. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. The OAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.